street epistemology is a wonderful approach that anyone can learn. You can learn more about street epistemology at streetepistemology.com. And we are here. What's up, everybody? Hey, what's up? Hey, everybody. Nice holiday. Nice holiday. Yeah. Reed, are you like in your aunt's bedroom or something or guest bedroom? What's going on? Yeah, but my family's here in Naples, Naples, Florida. I was in Bristol. I was like in the teens. Now I'm up in the 70s, so I'm, I'm happy. Mm-hmm. Looks like you got a here. diploma. What's your diploma in? Uh film for from college university of central florida it is your diploma it is yeah nice i have like my mom had like three copies made <laughs> so that's one of them i would imagine it's probably much cooler where ozzy's at though how's it going ozzy hi it's uh it's definitely cooler here i think it's uh <laughs> minus 37 celsius which is what Fahrenheit. yeah uh, not only is it uh, we're in a cold snap right now. There's an Arctic mass that's de- descended on the part of Ontario that I'm, I'm in. But um, last night, wow. my furnace died. Um, so at 3.30 in the morning, I woke up and I could see my breath. It was... <laughs> oh my gosh. Holy cow. Pretty cold. <laughs> we got it sorted yeah. out this morning. That's why I was late joining the hangout and all that. Oh, wow. Okay. No, no problem. We, we were messing with audio levels and everything. And I have to give you guys a warning too. Um, I have four contractors coming over between now and five o'clock. Okay. Um, HVAC, preventative maintenance, uh, a plumber to fix a clogged drain in our shower, um, someone to fix the hot tub, and then our dishwasher broke. <laughs> However, my family's on standby, ready to keep the dog quiet and get the door and make that all happen. Uh, so if you hear a dog bark or you know somebody ring the doorbell, that's what's probably what's going on. Um, cool. Yeah. But it's only, it's only like 45 degrees Fahrenheit here. So it's not really that cold comparatively. Yeah. We, we Americans don't know what cold is as Doug said in the chat. <laughs> well, I mean, it gets pretty cold in some of the climates here in the U S yeah. You're from like Chicago. That's pretty, that's pretty close. Right? Chicago is freaking really cold. Yeah. That lake effect or whatever. All right. So what are we covering today, man? We got a, we have a lot on the schedule today. I don't know how we're going to jam it all in. Um, well, today we have a guest, uh, Ozymandias, Ramsey II. Is that how you say it? Yeah. Um, and he's a expert in philosophy and epistemology. He'll be talking about that for a little bit. Uh, Could I interject there? Uh, sure. I, 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 I sort of want to beg off the, uh, the description as an expert. <laughs> My <Okay>. background is... <laughs> Contemporary analytic philosophy. I studied that in grad school, and I, I taught undergraduate philosophy for a while while I was a grad student. Uh, but I don't have a doctorate in philosophy, um, and so while my area of specialization was epistemology, I don't. I'm, it's a bit much to say that I'm an expert. You can call me a lay expert if you want. To. Um, I think that qualifies in my mind, but sure, if you, if you want to, yeah, that's fine. I should uh, jump in also is that we have Ozzy's mic maxed. So for all you audio audio files out there, we are trying our very best on this one. Yeah. Um, after that, we'll, we'll be talking about a couple of topics um, related to SE. Like, for example, why are there like three SE Facebook groups? 
Um, oh, that's a good topic. And, uh, like, is, is he splitting into like Peter Bogosian and Anthony Magnabosco factions? Is there a difference? What does that what does that even mean? <laughs> so, factions. Yeah, so I read that one on the call sheet. I'm like, the down. I'm like, there's that. factions. When did this happen? <laughs> came out of my head just like Barry Manilow did. I was I was just thinking of ideas, and I know just I was thinking about how people are often. You know, just what is SE anyway? Well, somebody says, "Oh, well, Peter Bogosian mm. says this." Yeah, but Anthony says that. So I'm like, okay. Actions. Yeah. So Joe's like, ah, there's a topic. Okay. A topic. Yeah, I've seen I've seen a little bit of that too. Yeah, we can we can get into that, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah, we, we just kind of monitor the Facebook groups and then like extract interesting topics for the uh, for the show. Yeah, like I think the best topics come from the discussions that are happening in the community. So I, I loved. I love uh, observing that and seeing what we can talk about. That's cool. Yeah. We'll also if, anybody talk about... has, if anybody has questions, you can type them into the YouTube chat for us, by the way. Yeah, if you're watching live, feel free to post some questions. We'll get to them. We'll also be talking about hypotheticals, um, why we use them, why they're valuable. Should we use them? We'll just talk about it. Oh, that's a good one to have Ozzy here on, too, I think. Mm, yeah. And also, uh, also the various ways people can contribute to the movement, even like if you can't go out and do, you know, what Anthony and I do or however you can contribute. So that should be fun. And that's a good topic we, because I have a, I don't know if we're going to get to it or not, but I have a short video that's like four minutes. And one of the takeaways is that it's a, it's a good way to, um, it, it gives you an option of, of still challenging a person's belief, but not necessarily going out and doing SE. Nice. Mm -hmm. Looking forward to that. You, you used uh, one of Pete's examples that he, he came up with in one of the yeah. community live streams. So, yeah. so we're, we're taking stuff from like the community live streams, just trying to figure out different, different ways to improve. It's really cool. Um, and then we'll just do some listener questions and maybe a few announcements at the end. That's cool. Where do we start? There's a lot here. Probably start with our guest, eh? Yeah. Um, Ozzy, you want to do a little more formal intro? Uh, sure. My name is Osmandius Ramses II. Um, I'm a, from Canada. I'm a YouTuber, and I have a YouTube channel that's devoted to questions of the great debate, the question of God's existence, and the philosophy of religion, apologetics, and counter-apologetics, and skepticism and critical thinking generally. Um, I also have a, a G plus account by that name and a Facebook account by that name. If anyone's interested. Still doing that Google plus thing. All right. How's that going? Thank you for you. Google plus seems to be uh, fading quite a bit. Okay. I wish they would get rid of it. Oh, such, such a hassle. Is it so integrated into YouTube now that it would be a pain to pull it out? I wonder. No, they've uncoupled the two in fact, so that you can, hmm. you no longer have to have, uh, you know, both and have, to have an account in each in order to use YouTube, which is what I did for a while to try to promote uh, G plus. But, uh, but there's a lot of communities and uh, people I know on, on G plus. And it's, it's it, in my estimation, it's actually a better medium for having uh, long threaded discussions uh, on a subject than Facebook is. I really don't care for the way Facebook works in that respect. Um, uh, but there, there are difficulties with G plus. Um, so, not recommending that everyone run out and, uh, and join G plus or anything. Go ahead. I won't do any good. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting. Like I forget about G plus and then three weeks later, 
I get a message that someone wants to be my friend and I'm like, Oh, that's, that's still around. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> delete that. Not that, you know, not that I don't want them to be my friend, but I just delete the email, but I don't even know what that means. And then there's like three or four different ways somebody can comment on your video. It's just, you get all these weird, there's just, there's, um, it's too variable or something. I, I don't, I don't quite understand it. Yeah. Well, they, they've changed the way that it works so many times, um, that for a time it was kind of nice. Uh, if you commented, uh, under a person's video, um, that comment was automatically reflected, uh, under the G plus post where they might've shared that video, for instance, and vice versa. Right. So if you comment in one place, it was, it, it was, um, mirrored in the other place. Uh, now you have to go to both places. So if you want to post a comment under a thread that a person has started about a video, you have to go to, go to their G plus page and post the comment. Mm. But then you would also have to go under the video if you want people who are watching the video and who aren't on G plus to see it, your comment, you have to go there as well. It's just a, a hassle. Fascinating. Okay. So let's move on to some, uh, some topics. Um, so epistemology, actually, um, just in general, or, or we want to, do we want to talk about what happened since the last show real quick? Just um, yeah, let's, what's, what's everybody been doing? I've just been busy with the holidays, you know, Christmas and getting ready for New Year's. Um, not yeah. really traveling or anything like that. You know what? Um, maybe before we, we get Ozzy's opinion on all this, maybe a little background I think would be in order. So like um, one of the common complaints that we seem to be hearing recently, Ozzy, is that uh, street epistemology is such a misnomer because the people who are going out and uploading examples of SE have no formal training in epistemology. They're not qualified to be doing what they what they are purporting to be doing. And, you know, our first, at least my first reaction was like, well, how dare they say I'm not qualified? But then I started realizing, well, yeah, I mean, I don't have any qualifications in epistemology. I've never studied it formally. And yet, when I think about the book that Bogosian wrote that started all this, he was intentionally writing his book for people like myself who have no experience in this matter to engage with people, to help them to start think about why they concluded what they conclude and how they determined what they th are believing is true. So we, uh, at least I, I still keep noticing this complaint and we thought, well, it could be beneficial to actually bring somebody on who has studied uh, epistemology and has observed uh, many of the SE videos that are out there and kind of get your take on it. Because, um, you know, if we're, if we're misrepresenting the field of epistemology, then I would like to stop doing that. Or if there's something that I can be doing to improve my interactions by studying epistemology, I'm open to that. Or if you think that, um, you know, we're, we're kind of on the right course here, uh, that would be interesting. Or if there's some other explanation, I'd kind of like to get your sense on that. Sure, sure. Um, first of all, uh, let me see if this helps my audio levels a little bit. I'll hold the microphone up. Um, uh, not okay, not well, too much. No, not sure. Okay, so I'll make much yeah. difference. I'll just make it with respect to the term epistemologist, I mean, an epistemologist is someone who has made a, a, some kind of formal study uh, at an academic level in questions of epistemology. And epistemology is just that branch of philosophy that concerns itself with the philosophy of science, with the nature of evidence, with competing concepts of truth, uh, various definitions and theories of knowledge, and, and so forth. 
Okay. So any philosopher will know some epistemology, even if you're an ethicist or a philosopher of mind or a philosopher of language um, or a political philosopher, you will have uh, studied some epistemology. So anybody who studied some philosophy at some point is going to come across epistemological questions. But I mean, to be an epistemologist is to simply say that you are particularly concerned professionally and academically um, with questions concerning epistemology. That's what an epistemologist is, right? But so is there anything wrong with calling yourself a street epistemologist if you've not been to university, if you've not studied philosophy, or even if you've studied philosophy but haven't studied epistemology um, as, a, as an area yeah. of specialization? I don't think there's anything wrong with it. I mean, uh, it, it's, it, there's nothing sort of more odious um, um, or out of step here than, than having discussions about ethics without having gone to university and studied ethics. You can have discussions about moral philosophy and normative ethics and stuff like that, as we all do around the dinner table and when we meet people, right? We're all practicing moral philosophy and ethics. We're not particularly informed if we haven't studied that, that, that subject, but we are in that sense, all street moral philosophers. We're all street ethicists. Right, in that sense. So is there anything wrong with being a street epistemologist? No, it just seems by parody of reasoning, if, if it's perfectly legitimate to, um, to raise philosophical questions out on the street with people that you meet or around the table with your friends uh, or wherever you're doing it, um, then why would it be particularly um, wrong to, to do so on questions of epistemology? I don't think there's anything wrong with it. I think the only mistake would be if you presented yourself as an authority, if you went around saying, uh, I'm an epistemologist, right? I, yeah. suggesting that you are an expert on the subject. That I think would be uh, dishonest and mm -hmm. misrepresenting yourself. And of course that you shouldn't do. And it gets a little dicey because you, those of you who practice street epistemology, what are you supposed to call yourself? Are you supposed to call yourself streetists or streeters, right? No, you want to call yourself street epistemologist. But the, but the idea is you have to think of street, a street epistemologist as not a kind of epistemologist, but rather as just a street epistemologist, that, right? Just like you're a street mm. ethicist or a street moral philosopher. Mm. Mm -hmm. so, so, do you think the the term is 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 about as good as it can be? Then, street epistemologist is that define clearly or describe what we're doing? Well, I, I will confess, when I first heard the term, I thought, "Whoa, wait, what's going on here? Who are who are these people who are professing to be epistemologists and practicing epistemology on the street, right?" And then I, I discovered, "Oh, wait, these are just ordinary people who are interested in critical thinking, and 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 rationality, uh, and standards of evidence, and they are are bringing to bear principles of, of critical thinking uh, to questions." of sort of broad metaphysical interest, you know, like questions of religion, for instance, and life after death and whatever sorts of beliefs people have on, on these sorts of subjects, right? Uh, so then you were okay, okay. you were okay with that the term I, then? Yeah, I, w I was okay, uh, but I, I can see why it might be a sort of a, 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 a persisting, an ongoing problem uh, for those of you who practice uh, street epistemology that, that it will sound uh, to, to a naive ear, like you're purporting to be something that you're not. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I think when I, when I hear that criticism, yeah, when I, when I hear it, when, yeah, when I try to think about how somebody who was formally trained in epistemology might feel when they discover these yokels out there having these random conversations with people and then using that word, I could see how it could be a little like, what the, what the hell are they doing out there? Um, yeah, but, well, I didn't but know the, what to expect. 
I, I, mm-hmm. I expected actually, I expected a real program. I, I expected something like uh, a script. I, I, I thought that that's what it was going to be like. I thought that either the, these, like initially, I thought street epistemology. What is this? This is going to be like a, a group of, of philosophers who are going out and, and taking to the streets. And, <laughs> <laughs> Took me about five minutes of watching a video to disabuse myself of that notion. Um, <laughs> oh boy! And, 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 no, I, I, I <laughs> that you are in fact practicing um, uh, epistemology, that you are concerned with epistemological questions, and you are in fact discussing epistemology, um, uh, and. And, and so that it's it's the right term, right? But you weren't talking over people's heads. I was expecting when I first heard it um, that okay, this is going to be a program. This is going to be a particular theory of of epistemology being deployed here. This is going to be like a kind of count, a specific kind of counter apologetic, perhaps analogous to presuppositionalism, for instance, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that you might be on a kind of script. Uh, and uh, I have to say, um, the first video or two that I saw, I, I thought that's what was going on. I was, I was viewing it through that lens of that expectation that I, that this was a kind of mm-hmm. counter supposition or, or something like that. That's in part an autobiographical problem because I myself was particularly concerned at the time with making videos about presuppositionalism or countering presuppositionalism. Um, but then I, I watched more videos and I talked to some people uh, and it, it became clear that that's not at all what street epistemology uh, is. It's much more open-ended. Um, it's not programmatic uh, and it doesn't seem ideologically driven. I mean, there's a purpose, there's a point to it, uh, but you're not deploying a, a, a script. You know, if they say this, then you say that. If they say this, then you say that. All trying to get to a particular conclusion. Really, what you're trying to do is get people to you're interrogating people's beliefs. And I find in a, in a very polite uh, way that I, I think should be modeled by others actually. Um, and, um, and it's very, very open-ended. The conversation sort of, sort of tends to go where, where it goes. It's, and it's, it, it's confrontational without being combative, uh, which is not at all what I was expecting. I was expecting something much more uh, hostile and combative and, and, aggressive. And, uh, so I was very pleasantly surprised when I started watching a bunch of these videos. Um, I was actually very impressed with it. I thought, boy, if more political and religious discourse um, was undertaken in the spirit of street epistemology, it would be terrific. Because really what you're doing there is you're getting people to question, right? Um, you're getting people to, to try to apply the standards of evidence and reasoning to these particular questions, uh, usually their religious beliefs, uh, that they the same standards that they would apply in any other domain of, of interest that they have, right? Um, it's funny you say that because the, the video example that I have is just a real world everyday example. And I'm trying to like engender that sort of sense of wonder and skepticism, and maybe we'll get a chance to play it. I think it's funny that you you talk about the, that it didn't appear that there was a script. Because a lot of people will say, I've watched 10 of these videos and it's obvious that you're following the script here. And and it was never intended to be that way. I even wrote a blog post explaining the pros and cons of creating a script. Like if we intentionally set out to create one, there are some benefits to having a script. Yet, um, and the benefits being, uh, you know, somebody new to it could pick it up fairly quickly. Um, but honestly, I, 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 I don't see it very scripted. Yes, there are a lot of the same beliefs that come up and the same justifications. And a lot of the questions can be similar. 
But um, yeah, I never quite saw it as a scripted thing and I never really wanted it to be scripted. And I'm, I'm kind of pleased that, that you did never, it never crossed your mind that it like that one, one thing that you noticed, at least it sounds like you're saying is that it didn't look scripted at all. Well, it's not that it didn't cross my mind. It's what, it's what I was expecting to find. And I yeah. was pleased when I didn't find it. Now, of course, yes, sometimes the, the certain questions come up over and over again. Yes, of course, there are occasions where you, when uh, a viewer of these videos can, can discern a pattern where if a person answers this way, there's an obvious follow-up question, right? But that's, as a, that's, that's different from, from what I mean by a script. A script is when a person isn't listening but they're just waiting to deploy certain questions to stump a person, to, to pwn them, to, to make, to humiliate them, make them look foolish. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that is not what I was seeing. In fact, I was seeing a very obvious um, effort on the parts of many of these videos, especially yours, Anthony, I've seen more of yours than anybody else's. Um, uh, an, an effort to, to give people a face-saving way out when they've kind of painted their, themselves into a corner. You, you let people paint themselves into a corner and then you sort of admit, just, just give them enough elbow room, mm-hmm. a kind of face-saving way out so that they can uh, go and think about it as opposed to dig in their heels and double down on something or walk away you know, angry or something like that. And that I think is very different from a script um, of like the presuppositionalist variety, for instance, where people mm-hmm. have certain stock philosophical chestnut problems with which to stump a person to yeah. shut them up. And, and then when they get stumped, then you just, you just, you just turn the, the knife uh, over and over again mm-hmm. to, to make them writhe in, in, in their discomfort, as opposed to trying to maybe um, sow a seed of doubt, get the person to, to, to be intellectually dissatisfied with the, their own answer and then want to think about it because you know, they want to come back with a better answer. Right. Like one of the things that's interesting is in some of the follow-up videos that I've seen, you know, sometimes people walk away and you can tell that in an hour or a day or a week, they're going to have that, what the French call the, a moment of esprit d'escalier, that, that, that moment of the, of, of, the, of the spirit on the staircase. You know, when you, when, you, when you have a fight with someone and you leave and you storm down the stairs and then you think, oh, I should have said this, right? You know <laughs> that after they leave yeah. you, going to think to themselves, oh, I should have said this, right? And you just know that they're not thinking, I never want to talk to that person. You know that they're thinking, I hope I bump into that person again, because I want to be able to, to raise this objection that I didn't think of at the time, or mm-hmm. uh, bring up this apologetic move that I didn't think of at the time, and stuff like that. And I like that the, the conversations tend to end on a very friendly note, uh, and that they're open-ended. Um, and it's confrontational. You're confronting the person's belief uh, system. You are confronting them with your own incredulity, um, but there's no attempt to humiliate the person. Um, uh, even if you think the, the belief is uh, ridiculous, you sort of bracket your own um, judgment uh, in that moment. And it just it gives the person occasion to, to think without all of the defenses coming up, right? And when mm-hmm. the shields go stop thinking right and what i what's impressed me most about street epistemology is that there's a kind of um emotional intelligence or social intelligence that that's gone into um the uh, the recommendations that you're, you're making for for how to proceed and how to practice it and they're the kinds it, they're the kinds of moves that make a person bring their shields down 
um, and want to think about it as opposed to put the shields up and stop thinking about it and never talk to you again. And uh, so, yeah, so, I'm very impressed with it. I've been, uh, I, in my mind, I think of this, uh, the actual Socratic questions and answers as sort of distinct from the um, friendly tone and, you know, uh, congeniality portion of it. Th they're two different prongs of the same, uh, of one approach. Uh, so I think the people being happy to have had the conversation and want to come back later, and this was so much fun, that's largely due to uh, Anthony and Reed's and hopefully the rest of us, our, our just our social skills and, and desire to to be respectful, but is sort of independent of the Socratic thing. And in my mind, SE is kind of the combination of those two. If, if you don't have both of those prongs, you're, you're doing something, but it, we probably shouldn't call it SE. I think and Ozzy hit on something though, Joe, when he was talking about how it doesn't appear like you're trying to trap a person. And it made me think of a question that Matt Dillahunty had asked me. I can't remember if, it, if it, this was a conversation we had on camera or just off camera. But he's, he asked me, how many times does somebody tell you that you set them up for a trap? And I told him never. That's never happened. I've never had somebody say, you've trapped me into this position. And I think I think it's uh, like maybe that is one of the best things about like this this approach that people do see it as a willing partnership that you're really trying to figure something out together. And this isn't about getting a person. This isn't about winning. And it's, it's kind of a rewarding thing at the end when somebody does walk away thinking about it and they contact you later and they want to talk about it again. And it's very rare. You just don't see that with, with sort of the, the counter apologetics approach that is so prevalent. I, I, I do think that one of the, one of the most important things about SE, though, is the um, the uh, uh, tone. The tone. It, 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 uh, we we are giving uh, atheism and skepticism. We're not perpetuating the stereotype of the angry atheist. In fact, we're we're battling it directly, and I I really think that is hugely important. I agree. I, I, oh, yeah. I've been saying that for years. I, I am sometimes characterized as an, uh, an atheist activist, and, and I, I don't normally self, in fact, I never self-identify as an atheist activist. I am, I am an, an atheist, and if I'm an activist, it's an, I'm an activist for critical thinking, rationality, and embracing scientific values. Um, and and I, I, my, my view is that, it, that if you want to sort of move people out of dogmatism and irrationality, which is the real enemy, not, not theism or you know, religion specifically, um, uh, but I mean, there are all kinds of non-religious, non-theistic irrationalities and dogmas out there, just think of political dogmas. Um, and, and so irrationality and dogmatism are real, real enemies here. And so if you can promote and encourage people and model um, uh, um, the practice of critical thinking and embracing of scientific uh, values and uh, high standards of evidence, if you can model that and disseminate that, you will get people moving away from irrationality and dogmatism and in the, in the, in the general direction, say, of agnosticism and atheism. You get, you, you, 
I mean, for those out there who are atheist activists, if you do something like street epistemology, I think you're going to sort of, <laughs> you're going to generate atheists as a kind of byproduct without even having to try. If you, right. if you, an activist or you're an agitator for critical That's the thinking. title of Bogosian's book. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I, I confess I have not read the book, so. Right, but we can't disseminate those things effectively. Well, nobody can, I don't think, but we can't do that if we're dicks about it. If, if, you, if you behave, you know, disrespectfully to someone, they just put their shields up and they're not going to listen to you, right? Yeah. When I first started going on Habit Talks, I was aggressive with street, like street preachers and I was you know, I, I mentioned at the last episode how I was like chasing a guy down the street because he, he wouldn't want to talk to me. <laughs> um, but as I started like, we're going to get a lot of mileage out of that, by the way, <laughs> I know I am <laughs> going to make it draw, make a cartoon about that. And yeah. The, guy down. Um, the point though, is that when I started looking at my, my own videos of myself and my behavior, I, it wasn't what I wanted to be. It wasn't, it was, I wasn't comfortable in that role. But a lot of the examples that I saw online were atheists acting very aggressively and preventing, you know, presenting the counter apologetics. So there weren't a lot of examples. There were a few. And Ozzy, you were one of them. Like when I saw you, I, I was like, oh, he's so calm and and respectful and knowledgeable. And he was giving the other person time, plenty of time to explain themselves. So so there, are, there were a few examples out there, but there weren't that many. And and I think SE is it, it's a good it's a good role model, I suppose, for for other people who are perhaps for the first time becoming comfortable with their atheism and looking around out there and seeing, you know, how do these people behave? How do they cope when they're, when they're in an argument, you know, how can I prepare myself? And, and yeah, I think SE is like just another approach for people to, to have those conversations that might be more fitting with their personalities. Can I touch on something that uh, Joe mentioned earlier? He said that yeah. he, he sort of sees that there's a kind of complementarity um, but they're somewhat um, independent. There are two prongs, as, as he put it. You know, there's the there's the there's the there's the sort of Socratic dialogue approach. But then that's coupled with um, a kind of respect for civility, the norms of civil discourse, right? Uh, not being too in your face or anything like civility, that. Civility. Yes. Yeah, trying not to to embarrass or humiliate your your interlocutor, um, and and that's interesting because that is exactly what you learn when you study philosophy. When you study philosophy as a profession or as a discipline um, in university, uh, one of the things that you learn, not so much because people tell you this or drum it into you, but you just see it modeled uh, by good philosophers, is holding your own beliefs at arm's length uh, so that you can critically evaluate them, uh, but also that so other people can critically evaluate them. So not, not showing that you're wedded to a certain position or that you have any particular animus for another position, for instance. And this is what I was alluding to earlier when I said that very often I see um, uh, Reed and Anthony in their videos when they're talking to people, clearly I, I, I think to myself, they just must think that this person's ideas are so dumb, right? But you never betray any such um, feelings. You, know, there's no, you, you don't come off as condescending. Um, you're not patronizing. You just, you just, you're, you're, you're simply interrogating. You're conducting a polite interrogation. You're trying to understand what that person is saying. You will, you will ask them for clarification. You will repeat back to make sure that you have understood and that you're not putting words in, in their mouth. You even say that. I don't want to put words in your mouth. Is this what you're saying? And then if they, 
if they change their mind and they want to backpedal a little bit and then modify it, you let them qualify it and you go with it. You don't try to hold them to some, to some weaker straw version of what they're actually trying to say. All of that is part of what philosophy is supposed to be. That is truly in the spirit of philosophy and, and epistemology, the, the pursuit, the disinterested pursuit of truth and knowledge. Um, so, I mean, in that sense, street epistemology, I think it exemplifies um, the, uh, some of the aims of a of philosophy and epistemology better than some philosophers do. <laughs> mm-hmm. Thank, yeah, I, I see a lot. Of, praise. Yeah. I see a lot of my comments, people um, giving me the, like the nickname of Spock. And like to, when I hear ridiculous beliefs uh, coming from people, it's not an act that I'm putting on. I am genuinely interested in how they came to that belief and why they believe it. Um, so I'm not holding back any like laughter or anything. It's, it's, I am, I am being myself when I'm talking to them. Yeah, so, but I mean, I, I think it's okay. It's, I, it's, I don't want to sort of overstate this. I don't want to uh, suggest that one has to be bloodless and Spock-like in these discussions and and not actually pass a kind of judgment in your own mind. You know, this is a stupid belief, or this person just reasons abominably, right? Uh, but the as long as you're able to bracket that and say, well, okay, so this person has come to a dumb belief, you know, I've had plenty of those myself, you know, I'm Mm -hmm. sure in fullness of time, I will look back on what I presently believe about something and think it was dumb. And I will be embarrassed by what I I believe. And I would hate to be humiliated or have it held against me that I, you know, hold some dumb belief, just like, you know, some of the other dumb things that I used to believe. We, We are all of us embarrassed at some of the things that we have believed and that's going to happen to us again and and when if you can think about if you can bear that in mind in in conversations it helps you to be uh intellectually uh charitable and even generous to another person who by your lights believes something preposterous or has arrived at that belief in, in 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 a epistemologically reckless or irresponsible way right which we all did i mean this is a sort of a thing, a conceit that I think that those of us in the skeptical movement need to sort of disabuse ourselves of is this idea that we're all just sort of born natural skeptics, but we get stupidities pickled into us and stuff like that. Um, and uh, I, that's, I don't think that's how the mind works. I think that we, we don't start off as naive skeptics, blank slates that drink in beliefs. Um, rather, we start off as naive credulists. We believe everything that we're told as infants, we have to, right? We're just like ducklings following mama duck. We just have to believe what we're told. And what happens is in the fullness of time, we acquire and develop critical faculties. Uh, We pick things up, we learn how to think about our beliefs. Um, And if you're lucky, you have good models around you of critical thinking that you can model yourself after and say, oh, this is this, right? People who are good at People have good bullshit detectors, right? Uh, People who are good at spotting fallacies and explaining why an argument doesn't make sense or something like that. If you have the the benefit of of that in your life early on, that will set you on on a course for better bullshit detecting and having a better epistemology of your own. But we're not all equally blessed with that kind of good fortune. I mean, I certainly, I mean, I I grew up in a Jehovah's Witness household. I, I grew up as a and it's not like I was, you know, mentally ill and then I just got better one day. No, what happened is at, at some point um, uh, my critical thinking skills developed and I was able to look back and stop compartmentalizing um, and, and I, 
insulating the a certain subset of beliefs uh, from critical critical scrutiny. And so that is really what what you want to achieve. And that's one of the things I think is really nice about about um, SE is that it, it is charitable and generous to people. It recognizes that not everyone is in the same place in their intellectual trajectory of critical thinking, right? It is a skill. It is learned. It is acquired. And it's mostly acquired by having good models of it around you. And many of us, perhaps most of us, don't have such good models. I didn't growing up. Yeah, I like to think of our brains as the hardware, but we can have you know, software upgrades, you know, some tools to help us think better and to make us more intelligent. And I, and I think modeling um, helps with that a, a lot because a lot of our intelligence is like social intelligence. Like I read Bogosian's book, but I didn't really get it that well until I saw Anthony's videos and saw it, you know, saw it modeled for me. And then I really got it and I was really into it. So, yeah. And then... Yeah. And then you're doing it. Other people are watching your videos read and then taking it and being inspired to go and have a talk or even film their own talks and put their own spin on it, which is good. Um, I wanted to just cover one th real thing, one thing real quick uh, that Ozzy was, was talking about. And there's this perception that by by not disclosing where you are on a particular belief that you're that you're being disingenuous. And um, so there's this there's this sort of there's the dog. So there's this fine line between, uh, you know, disclosing just enough to make the person comfortable to share their beliefs with you, but possibly holding back on your position of what they are claiming is true for the benefit of the conversation, because disclosing your position could make them uncomfortable and that type of thing. But I feel like I've been doing this for so long and I, I think I could. In fact, the video that I'm going to release later today, I tell this lady where I stand on her claim. And I, f I feel like I've reached a point where I could just do it in a very friendly manner and not, uh, you know, set somebody off, you know, uh, or make a person uncomfortable. Um, so, yeah, those are just things that I think that um, we have to be careful of, you know, uh, because we probably do disagree with people. And, uh I think there are ways to share your disagreement without um, jeopardizing the conversation. I just wanted to make sure that I covered that. Can I say a thing uh, or two about um, yeah, this idea go of, of non-disclosure? Um, yeah, that's a big topic that comes up all the time. You're just being insincere. You're gonna you're gonna have that conversation with them, and you're gonna laugh afterwards, and you're uploading it to laugh at people, and that's not at all where I'm coming from with these. Yeah, I, you can certainly imagine a person doing it in that spirit. Um, I can easily imagine it. I mean, we've, we've all seen videos of people doing exactly that kind of thing, actually. You can think of a few. Um, and so, yeah, that, that, there's, there's a risk that someone could, could embark on SE uh, with that kind of mean-spiritedness. Is it possible that the, the, the people who, who make this objection about, you know, you're not being sincere are only saying that because they were expecting a fight and they didn't get one. And no, I don't think it's that they were expecting a fight. I think they were expecting us to tell the person what the correct answer is. They're, they're no, expecting no, I, that's to take what, a I understand that's what, on it. I understand that's what they say. But is it possible that they say that because 
they they feel a little cheated somehow. It's like, wait a minute, no. you're, you're maybe, I'm, maybe, I'm, like, maybe I'm too charitable with the audience. Like I think I give I hold them to a higher standard maybe than I should because I think I think people aren't coming to these videos for a fight. I maybe initially they were, and then they're like, what's going on? There was. How come he, uh, Anthony didn't challenge him on his claim of that the Earth is six thousand years old? Uh, but now, no, I think now people, well, I think people understand SE, but they they want us to to justify our own stance. And when they're not getting that from us, then they think we're being disingenuous because we're not sharing our view. Well, there there is there is a potential problem there. Um, or in ordinary conversations that happen, you know, very organically, where you're not sort of trying to practice SE the way you do it, for instance, you go out on the street and talk to strangers, right? But very often when people are having conversations about these sorts of questions, um, what ends up happening is you have people with two different points of view, each trying to convince the other. And that's a weird kind of debate, right? Uh, it's not like a formal debate. The way a formal debate is normally structured is you have one proposition, one person upholds it and the other person just has to attack that position or attack the arguments for that position. They don't have to embrace an opposing or different or alternative position at all, right? It's just we're discussing proposition P and the other person is just critiquing P. They don't have to be embracing Q or R or S or T or any other proposition, okay? But normally when we have conversations, say between theists and atheists, um, what happens is you have a person who wants to argue that religions are stupid, irrational and harmful or something like that. And you have one person that is embracing his or her religion. Uh, and so you have two debates happening. And so what happens there is you have two burdens of justification. One person is trying to defend their faith and the other person is trying to defend why they ought, one ought to be faithless. Um, and uh, and that, can, that, that, is, that, that, that creates a problem in a conversation because you, in every minute that you're talking, you have to decide, am I going to attack my opponent's uh, position if you view them as an opponent? Um, or am I going to defend my own position? What SD tries to do is say, listen, we're, we're going to talk about your views. Now, when you're talking about another person's views, you're talking about their views, right? My views don't enter into it, right? I want to hear your view and why you believe it. You don't need me and my belief set in the room at all to have that conversation. You could be having that conversation with someone who shares your belief. I like to remind people that in order to question a person on what they believe and why they believe it, it, one need not presuppose that the question is only motivated by hostility or animosity or even doubt. It can be simply inquiry. I, I, I might share your belief. I, I certainly uh, interrogate people who share my political uh, beliefs and my moral philosophy and my, my atheistic views, for instance. I interrogate people of like mind all the time and I ask them what they believe. And I ask them why they believe it. That's not coming from an opposing view, right? It's coming from a, a person who's utterly sympathetic. So the idea that you would challenge a person um, uh, on, on what they, they believe and question them on, on what they believe is often uh, assumed to be only motivated by opposition. But that, that needn't be true. You can be motivated by complete agreement and still be yeah. curious. But yeah. because these discussions, especially religious and political discussions, are typically motivated by antipathy, right? Animus towards the, the position, right? They imagine that you're, 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 there's something fishy going on here. You're not coming out here 
with you know the, the guns blaring and 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 hitting them with the opposing view, right? But look, when when two people disagree on something and they right, they can choose. They have three options. We can discuss this person's views and evaluate it, or we can discuss this person's views, or we can have both conversations at the same time. But then you have to decide <laughs> every moment: Am I defending my view or am I attacking yours? Like, how is this going to go? So and I you see you're just. In this conversation, I just want to interrogate you and understand your views. That you you said a little bit more gracefully what I was trying to say, uh, <laughs> <laughs> a lot more gracefully. But but so so the way it seems to me is is I like this how you're talking about how there are two conversations going on at the same time that actually explains a lot. Um, but so I'm so I'm I'm thinking that the person who says you're being disingenuous says that because. Uh, they are. They come into this conversation armed to to fire at and, and destroy the other person's position. If you don't present them with a position, they feel like you're being disingenuous because you didn't exactly. give me right. They just weren't equipped for it, and so they 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 say, "Well, you're not playing fair." Yeah. yeah, yeah. This 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 reminds me of like a metaphor, like uh, yeah. Uh, I'm not holding up a target for you to fire missiles at. I want to put my target aside and ask why you've armed yourself and why you're pointing in that direction. And why did you? (laughs) (laughs) And they want that battle. Like, what are you talking about? I'm I'm ready to, I'm ready to go here. Why aren't, why aren't we fighting? Or they may not necessarily be wanting the battle. They just weren't prepared for. They're expecting it possibly. Yeah. 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 There's another motive here that, that I think happens that, that motivates people to be dissatisfied with um, SE um, when they watch these, these conversations. Um, and, and that is if you're on the receiving end of this interrogation, okay, um, uh, it, it, it can seem a little bit um, frustrating, I think, because very often when you are debating your views with a person, You've all heard the expression, uh, the best defense is a good offense, right? If I can just keep you answering my questions, I don't have to answer any of your questions. I don't have Mm -hmm. to defend my position as long as I get you to defend your position. And I find actually within the great debate uh, between theists and atheists, I see this all the time. I see both sides burden shifting. I I hear theists saying to atheists, I don't need to explain why there's God. You're an atheist. You need to explain why there's no God. And then I hear atheists saying the same thing, but in reverse. I don't have to explain why there's, there's no God. You, because you believe there is a God, you need to explain why there is a God. Because you get both sides trying to disavow any epistemological responsibility for defending what they think is true about the world. You know, if you think there aren't any gods, if you think they're made up, well, that's a claim about reality. <laughs> um, and I think it's one that's not terribly hard to defend, but there's something there to defend. And theists certainly have something to defend. But typically people, they understand intuitively that, that one way to, to um, uh, not have the weaknesses in your own position exposed is to never be on the receiving end of any, any tough questions and keep the other person off balance by questioning them. And in SE, what you're saying is, hey, I'm just here to interview you and interrogate you. And I'm, I'm keeping my beliefs out of it. They're, 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 ir- they're irrelevant to your ability to articulate your reasons um, and defend your position and explain how you arrived at it. Right? You don't need me in the room for that, really. You should be able to do that all on your own. 
right? And I think there's, I think there's something to be said for when your interlocutor asks after you've sufficiently questioned their position, you know, using Socratic questions and this type of stuff using SE. Um, there's almost an obligation. This almost always comes up. Okay, Anthony, you've asked me a lot of questions about my belief. What do you believe? What is your position on the same belief? Because they don't usually know by the time they ask that question, which is good. Like I'm, I'm really pleased when they don't know my position and I do feel an obligation to explain it to them. And I will. And, um, I, I, like I said earlier, I, I think I'm getting better at explaining to them my position, particularly if I disagree with them without making them uneasy. Like, I think we've built enough rapport. I've showed enough respect to them at the start where they're much, it seems like they're much more eager to accept my position, even though I disagree with them because I've, I spent so much time on the front end listening to them. And maybe that's beneficial. Maybe they would be more open to my reasons for my view because I've afforded them so much on the front end. I don't know. Seems fair to, to reciprocate and give them five minutes to ask me questions. Uh, yeah. should we, so we got lots of good questions here. Uh, yeah. Want to get to the video? We can do the video real quick, then some questions. Yeah, we need Anthony to do that. I think he's talking with one of his contractors. Um, yeah, I can make a quick comment. Yeah. Yeah. For me, watching Anthony's videos, learning like we're, we're pattern seeking creatures. And a lot of Anthony's videos were about uh, Christian beliefs or, or God beliefs for a while. But he also talked about other talked to the people who believed other things besides Christianity. So you once you watch all of these videos about different topics, it's it, kind of gets into like a meta topic. You can, you can see the meta method going on. You can just see how it's all about inquiry and, and curiosity. And it really doesn't even matter what people believe. It's it's about the questioning and the, and the inquiry, as you said, which is awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, epistemology isn't about interrogating a specific belief or type of belief. It's about, you know, in, in this case, it's, it's about standards of evidence, right? What, what constitutes sufficient evidence for whatever it is you believe to, the, to whatever degree of confidence you happen to believe, right? Um, and, and that is sort of, um, that, that's something that cuts across any particular kind of, of belief, right? It, 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 so if you watch enough of these videos and, 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 and you see that the, the, the pattern of of questions and the kind of concerns that, that arise over and over again uh, are the same, irrespective of whether you're talking about religion or UFOs or karma or souls or, or what have you. Um, uh, when, when, when you see that, that the same concerns arise again and again, uh, and people make the same kind of moves in justifying uh, their beliefs, and you, you realize, oh, okay, right, epistemology isn't, a, isn't sort of a, some, or street epistemology isn't a technique for disabusing people of these particular beliefs, just a way of getting people to recognize um, how responsible or irresponsible they have been, wittingly or uh, unwittingly, in how they've arrived at their beliefs. It's a, it's a way of exposing that, but in, in a way that's not humiliating, but in a way that is enlightening for the person that you're having the conversation with. And that, that, I think, is one of the, sort of, for me, one of the most sort of gleeful moments watching some of these has been when you see, when you get the light bulb moment, right? Like you see the light bulb go on where they go, 
oh, they've connected the dots and you've helped them connect the dots. Yeah. And you didn't fight, do it by berating them and telling them how dumb they were and you committed this fallacy and that fallacy. You just let them recognize the fallacy, yeah. right? Recognize yes. it's rewarding. a standard of evidence that they themselves would insist upon. In, in, for, if it was about anything else than the particular belief that they're, they're, they're trying to shore up in that moment. And that's terrific. I, I love that, right? And, you know, the, that is really an enlightening moment, right? That, uh, I mean, I, that's got to be really rewarding. I mean, I, I used to teach uh, undergraduates when I was in university, when I was a grad student. And that was, as a teacher, that was always the best moment, that little moment where I would be, you know, talking with a student either in you know, office hours or right in the classroom in front of everybody else. And of course, you never want to humiliate a student. You're never trying to pwn your students, right? You're trying to get everyone to participate. The last thing you want to do is humiliate anybody, right? You want everyone to feel that they, they be comfortable, you know, giving an honest expression to what they believe and honest reasons why they, why they believe it as opposed to confabulated ones. Um, and, and watching that light bulb moment where they see it, right? And very often there are people around them who, I've seen it before they did, but then they see it. And it, oh, that's fantastic because they feel enlightened in that moment. They don't feel dumb in that moment, right? They don't feel dumb. They feel like, oh, they just had an insight. They feel like they've discovered something on their own. And that's. Yeah, in fact, they feel like they've discovered something on their own. And that's why I think so many times at the end of these interactions, people thank you guys for the conversation and say, this was really interesting, right? Because it was, it was interesting to them. You were talking about their beliefs. Everyone likes talking mm-hmm. about themselves and what they believe. That is genuinely the teaching of epistemology. That is, that is literally it. You don't you know what? agree. Some, some time ago, probably about, probably about a year ago, it occurred to me in my head, I, I thought to myself, what, what, what I'm actually doing is teaching people. Yeah, I'm acting, I'm acting as a teacher. I'm teaching them critical thinking. This this is probably a perfect segue to the f- the formative video that I have because it's not at all about SE and well, it is in a way because what we're talking about here that I think what we're learning is that SE is so much more than about questioning a person or imparting doubt, but I think it's about imparting tools. It's about imparting this tool set to people who may have never realize that they can be skeptical about things that they were taught, things that they really think are true. And I'm going to release this video in full later tonight. Uh, it's like a 20 minute video, but I just have four minutes here. And that's, that was like my big takeaway. Like SE, I think is about teaching people how to perform these, these Socratic questions, the self inquiry teaching how to think and how to challenge your beliefs yeah for me it it demonstrates the scientific principle in just ordinary conversation i love it there's a huge overlap the scientific method okay so i'm gonna go ahead and hit play here on this video it's about four minutes long i'm standing out in my usual spot and before we even get it she she mentions that she believes in the the god probably the christian god she's been reading some c.s lewis and uh, before we get into examining her belief, I decided to do a calibration ex- like a exercise where um, I got this idea from Science Pete, where he talks about, why don't you just tell somebody that you own an expensive car? And at first I forgot about that. So I start, I start a different approach, but then I remember the car example and I switch over to that. So we'll go ahead and play this and then give me a thumbs up, guys, if you can hear it. Okay. 
You want to focus on the higher power then as opposed to the specific Christian God? And the scale is optional. Okay, yeah. You don't have to do it. 100% would be, there's no question in my mind. I have no doubt. Yes, at this point, I have no doubt. Okay. I'm not saying something can't come along later on in life and change my beliefs. I mean. Okay. You're 100% confident. Yet you're open to changing your mind. Correct. Okay. I admire that. Let's calibrate the scale just a little bit. Okay. How certain are you that I'm right here in front of you right now? Uh, Zero to 100. Based on my vision, mm-hmm. and based on all my senses, yeah. I would say 100% based on all my senses. I could be a hologram. Correct. A very complicated one. <laughs> I suppose it's not entirely. Not, are you 100% sure that I'm in front of you right now? Uh, based on my sense of seeing and my sense of hearing, yes. Okay. And I just shook your hand. So my That's true. We, we did touch. Okay. So I would say 100% that you're in front of me. Okay. Okay. Can we expand the thought experiment just a tad? Mm-hmm. And I'm going to make a claim. Okay. I'm going to claim that I own a Ferrari. Okay. And where would you be in terms of your confidence that that claim is true? Uh. You own a Ferrari. I would say, I would say probably 5% on my confidence. That Five out of 100. Correct. Hmm. What does that say about you? Pretty skeptical on that claim. Yes, I am. If I was wearing a suit and I made the same claim, would you still be? Oh, I'd probably be even less, probably 2%. Less. Really? Interesting. <laughs> that's how people dress to impress. <laughs> If I pulled out a keychain with the Ferrari logo on it, would you move I from the five? Don't be skeptical because you've got to look mm. at the whole picture. How many people actually own a Ferrari? And what are the chances that you own a Ferrari versus mm. the entire population? I don't think that many people own Ferraris. Okay. So I'd be quite skeptical because I have mm. to go with the chance, you know, with the chances. Sure. What would change your mind that I actually owned a Ferrari? If you showed me the title to the Ferrari. Mm. How about if I said, well, that, that's at my house, but I can walk you out to the parking lot and show you my Ferrari. No, I still wouldn't believe it. People rent cars all the time. Fact, I think would more move, people are renting Would you move from the 5%? No, I don't think mm. so. I... I, I Okay, I'd probably, yeah, budget maybe 1% or 2%, yes. If we were to walk over there and I'd beep, beep the car and actually get into it. But whether you actually own it or you're renting it is a big difference. Yeah, okay, okay. That's good. So um, a title of uh, proof of ownership. Yes. With maybe a stamp on it from the city or I don't know how that all works. Then I would believe you 100% that you own it. okay. And, that, and your driver's license matches yeah. the name on the title. Is it conceivable that I've actually sold the car in the morning and That's I'm here true. to meet the person? This is true. I hadn't thought of that. So would 100% be a good place to be on that? If you still had the title with mm-hmm. your name on it, I'd still say 100% and all the pieces were intact on the title. Because I think you've got to tear off a portion of the title. I have no idea how that yeah, works. Yeah, I think you do. There's a portion where okay. you actually tear, tear it off to get mm. to, the, to, the, to okay. the seller. So I, I think what I'm getting here from you is that 
you would be willing to fluctuate in terms of your confidence on yes. a belief, yes. depending on uh, the, evidence. the evidence that you're receiving. Correct. Right. Okay. All right. So let's, can we just shift really quickly back yes. to the higher power? Yes. That is really interesting. The, the thing so, that, that strikes me. Can, can I just let me just say real quick, Joe? If people strictly went out and did this belief calibration exercise, which I didn't come up with, this was something that uh, Science Pete came up with. If you just did this ten times a day, that that could be really helpful to people. You don't even get into the belief that they hold. Just say, "Hey, hey, stranger, I have this belief. I'm going to make a claim." And I want to get a sense and just you start engaging with them on that. I think that could be extremely educational for people. Yes, I think it's 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 S.E. just as much as talking about a godly. I love that. You could use that as like a practice method if people wanted to go out and just practice with that for like a month Dude, or a week, I, a couple weeks. Yeah, I say that at the end of this video, that if you've been thinking about going out to do S.E. or have an S.E. conversation, just experiment with a belief calibration exercise. Yeah. Love so it. the thing, the thing that really struck me is how she's her, she's th she's thinking in, in in typically you know logical fashion you know well statistically only this many people, so that all makes sense. But it was interesting to me how she uh, her scale tended to want to either go all the way down or all the way up. She she was not comfortable somewhere in the middle. It seemed like it was it was always going to be well you don't and or you do. She, she wanted to be on one end or the other and, and couldn't feel herself comfortable with, with it being a, an analog. That's value. an interesting observation. Yeah. Maybe she was more comfortable on the extremes rather than, even though she said she was open to changing her mind. Yeah. That's like a, a, a deck of like, you know, just cards where we can write down different like beliefs or claims about ourselves and half of them are false and half of them are true. Hmm. And we could tell that to the person and then we could show oh, them. them. <laughs> I was thinking about just going out there with a baby stroller next time and saying, Hey, you know, my, I'm, I'm going to make a claim that my wife is on the trail with our baby right now. So you, there's endless numbers of uh, examples. Oh, you can come up with. I, I, I claim that this baby is mine. How sure are you? <laughs> maybe not the babies, maybe the, the Ferrari, but that's so if you're looking for a safer entry point into SE, this might be a really good way of doing it. And again, like I think we're imparting to a tool set. She perhaps maybe for the first time, as it turns out, she turned she's a very skeptical person because and she explains later. But um, you may you may be modeling skepticism for a person for the very first time. And that could be an invaluable experience. Yes, I've said this many times. I, I really think that a huge number of people just have never thought like this it just it's just not something they've ever done or felt the need to or or care to or anything it just has never been something they practice whether or, or they but here's the thing they do do this they they do perform this exercise to some degree on many of their beliefs if they didn't right. they would be homeless and they would be broke and they would be gullible and they the people would take advantage of them so they are doing it but they're carving out an exception for certain beliefs they're not applying the same template for every belief that they hold well yeah. i would say that that everyone is always thinking but but they don't often think about thinking yeah, we all do this automatically for things we don't want to be true it's, mm. the, it's the beliefs that we want to be true that we, we don't do this with interesting that's why everyone thinks that's why everyone will, will 
well, almost everyone will self-identify as a skeptic. If you ask a person, you can, you can talk to the most credulous conspiracy theorist who believes in all manner of conspiracies, and they will tell you, oh, I'm extremely skeptical. And that's because what they, they think skepticism is, is the having of doubts, right? Uh, and a conspiracy theorist someone believes in a flat earth and the moon landings were a hoax and, and that's when 9-11 was a conspiracy by the government and so forth. People who believe in, in conspiracies generally um, or who are credulous generally are, are fully capable of, of entertaining doubts. They have all kinds of doubts. They just, by, by our lights, I think they have doubts about the wrong things uh, and for the wrong reasons. But so skepticism isn't doubting. Skepticism isn't incredulity. As you said, Reed, uh, it comes naturally. Doubting mm-hmm. is like the feeling of certainty. When you think something is true, the, the feeling of conviction that often accompanies uh, with it is just a feeling. And doubt is just a feeling, just an emotion that you feel yeah, that's associated with a belief. Um, uh, and and it, 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 it shouldn't really have any weight. It doesn't, it doesn't count. The fact that you doubt something doesn't make it less likely to be true, right? The fact that you doubt something is your, your, your assessment that it isn't likely to be true. Right? right, it's not evidence that it's that it's false, right? Um, and your feeling of, of certainty isn't evidence that something is is the case or is true. It's that a feeling of certainty just is your your strong assessment that something is the case. So, doubt and certainty are just emotions; they're just feelings, and and neither one of them is skepticism. Skepticism is often characterized as the having of doubts, but doubting isn't skepticism. Inquiry and interrogation. That's what skepticism is. Doubting happens all by itself. Everyone, as you said, is naturally uh, disposed to doubt things that don't conform with what they already believe. Everything that you think is false, as soon as you hear it, right, boom, you doubt it. And if you hear something for the first time that you've never entertained before, but it doesn't sit well with a bunch of things that you think are true, immediately you will doubt it. But that's not being skeptical. Right. That's just the reverse image of being naively credulous. Now you're being naively incredulous. Right. There are warranted beliefs and unwarranted beliefs, and there are unwarranted doubts and warranted doubts. And so this is what happens to us, though. Almost everyone thinks that they're skeptical because they can be so critical and and doubting of things that other people think are true. And so they think that they are, you know, I'm not part of the herd. I'm not part of the sheep. That reminds me of that study or something that says that there's there's X number of people that are just horrible, dangerous drivers. But most people think that they don't fall in that category. They're in the I'm a good driver category. And there's just a a preponderance of people that would put themselves in that category. But statistically, you can't have that many people on that side. So, yeah, maybe people just think that they're good skeptics, but they don't necessarily have the tools. Yeah. And after watching that video, I think this is a good segue into our, our topic about hypotheticals, because you you seem to go into a bunch of hypotheticals in that in that video in that example, Anthony, of like what if we yeah showed the okay so I did I did raise some hypotheticals there, uh, but what the, I'm seeing some resistance to presenting hypotheticals in SE, and I think the resistance is when you create a hypothetical that cannot be achieved, uh, and that's where I think I see some kickback. So perhaps try my, my recommendation, I think, is pick a hypothetical that you can literally demonstrate. Um, we probably really could find a Muslim who is just as convinced their God exists because they said that they experienced a miracle. That is a good hypothetical. 
But if you pick something like, uh, you know, there's an invisible pink dragon floating around the moon or something like that, um, that might be you know much harder to to demonstrate, <laughs> and people will dismiss that hypothetical. But lately, I've been seeing just a knee jerk reaction to, I don't I don't entertain hypotheticals. They're just not, and I see a lot of that from the theistic side. And I don't know if you've ever noticed that um, if if people who tend to be credulous or believe things and maybe are not so skeptical have more of an inclination to avoid entertaining hypotheticals. Has that been any of your experiences? I, I've noticed a, a change in how people talk about hypotheticals uh, recently. I, and I think it stems from politics. Um, um, politicians are often sort of put in the hot seat by a journalist. They're, they're asked a hypothetical question. Well, if such and such were to happen, right, would you vote for such a bill or something like that? And they just, they don't want to answer. They don't want to get painted into a corner or something like that. And they'll say something like, I, I don't entertain hypotheticals. And the, the, that expression, you know, I, I, I don't entertain hypotheticals or uh, I don't answer hypothetical questions. That, that is taken on the character of a meme. I, I hear it everywhere now, it seems. Um, and I, I think it's a completely illicit move because in fact, we all entertain hypotheticals every day, right? I mean, you, you, you literally can't get through life without entertaining hypotheticals, right? If I say something like, um, if I had stepped off the curb, the bus would have killed me, right? Is that true or false, right? Well, that's a hypothetical. It's called a hypothetical conditional, right? Yeah, um, we use we them all the time. Every single day, exactly. Uh, historians do it every day, you know. If the Nazis had won the war, history might have unfolded thus and so, or it would have gone very badly for Jews all over the world or something like that, not just in Germany and Poland and so forth, right? Um, so um, we entertain hypotheticals all the time. Entertaining a hypothetical is imag simply imagining uh, a, a way that the world isn't, but but could be. Uh, and the reason we ask these these sorts of questions is to is to work out the implications of what a person's position is. Look, I, I'm not asking you to you know to say that you agree with the hypothetical um, or that you think it's true. I'm just asking you, given what you already believe, what's already in your belief set. If the situation in this hypothetical were to arise, what would you say or do or believe or conclude on the basis of what you what's already in your belief set? Right. It is in philosophy. This is called a thought experiment. A thought experiment is simply working, allowing you to work out the implications of a, of a position or a set of positions uh, under various circumstances. All moral reasoning works that way. Right. Should I do this or should I do that? Would it be wrong to do this? Well, what if, you know, what if so and so were pregnant or what if so and so was a friend of so and so? And, you know, uh, whenever you entertain uh, these scenarios, you're engaged in hypothetical reasoning. Hypothetical reasoning is fundamental to all practical reasoning. Right? You can't do practical reasoning without hypothetical reasoning. So when people say I don't entertain hypotheticals, what they mean is they don't like your particular hypothetical that you're putting forward. Perhaps it seems uh, ad hoc. It seems, you know, uh, 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 unmotivated or something like that. It seems, um, so, so far out, um, as to, as to be irrelevant to what they're talking about, in which case you need to explain why it is relevant and they can explain why they think it's still irrelevant and so forth. But, uh, hmm. I have heard more and more of this talk of, I don't entertain hypotheticals, but that, that I think is, is uh, people, uh, repeating something that they have heard said, that they find useful in an argument without actually having thought about how it is impossible to get through an hour of, of action in the day 
without entertaining hypotheticals. We all do it all the time. It's part of being sentient, isn't it? Uh, I don't see how somebody could drive a car without entertaining hypotheticals. You're doing it thousands of times from point A to point B. Yeah. 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 And it's so close to the word hypothesis. So if you want to like test your beliefs, you need to formulate a hypothesis first and then, you know, figure out what kind of result you would expect and then test that hypothesis. So what if is like a kind of a little bit of a scientific thing. I, I hear people who self-identify as skeptics and proponents of critical thinking and scientific reasoning uh, saying that sort of thing. And then one has to remind them that science, as you just pointed out with the word hypothesis, requires hypothetical reasoning, the entertaining of hypothetical counterfactual situations, that is situations that are not actually the case now, but if they were the case, what would we expect to find? If such and such a particle existed, what would we expect to find in the cloud chamber or, you know, um, uh, with this, what would happen with, if we use this, you know, uh, particle collider or something like that? Um, all scientific reasoning uh, depends on this. And think about it, some of the earliest scientific discoveries were made through this kind of uh, thought experiment. Galileo wasn't actually up on the, the Tower of Pisa dropping, you know, uh, balls off to find out which would hit the ground first, the heavier one, the lighter one, the, you know, and, and so forth. He wasn't actually doing that. He actually carried out thought experiments. He just reasoned it out. He said, if I had two, two spheres of, of equal volume, but different masses, one, one was made of lead and one was made of wood, and I dropped them off, what would happen? And he said, well, on the Aristotelian model, the heavier one would fall faster and first. And then he imagined, well, wait a minute, supposing I were to tie them together with a string, would the heavier one pull the lighter one down or would the lighter one slow down the fall of the, of the heavier one? Or would I suddenly have to mash the two together and treat them as an even heavier mass so they would both fall even faster the moment I, I tied them together? What if I tied them together in mid-fall? What would happen then? Would they suddenly speed up, slow down? Or what would happen? And you realize through a thought experiment, this makes no sense, right? This is impossible, right? And, and this is the start of hypothetical reasoning. And then you go on and you can, you can test it. Uh, but I mean, he, he reasoned out before ever having to do any, any kind of experiments, rolling balls down in inclined planes and stuff like that, that, that uh, a certain Aristotelian model was just nonsense. It made no sense. <laughs> I, wow. I personally think that the most imaginative, the most imaginative people in the world are scientists. That you have to have a powerful imagination to be able to, to manufacture these, these abstract ideas in your head. I agree. You have to you have to do the work of philosophy, but constrained. Right? You, you like it's it's not like you're a novelist, for instance. You can imagine any world you want when you're a novelist, pretty much, right? But when you're a scientist, you have to imagine a way that the world is that's consistent with everything you already know. You can't rewrite history, right? Uh, science is always constrained by the data set that that we have, and so your 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 world building, your your imaginative world building. Um, uh, I'm constrained by a set of facts that are, that are, that are really uh, restrictive. Uh, and, and this is what goes on in philosophy. Like when you do moral philosophy, you've heard of trolley problems possibly. Um, uh, what are trolley problems? But thought experiments, right? Mm -hmm. And what, what these trolley problems are, are intended to do is to show that, look, the, the moral intuitions that you have, uh, uh, they lead you to sometimes completely um, contradictory conclusions, depending on how I tweak the thought experiment, right? If I tweak the, 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 um, the details in the, in the trolley problem, you come out saying, yeah, I would pull the lever and I would sacrifice one person to save five. But then if I change the, 
the, uh, the, the situation slightly in your imagination, you, you then come to the opposite conclusion and say, I would never do that. That would be monstrous. Well, why wasn't it monstrous a moment ago? Right. All that's changed are incidental details. And this just allows a person to to work out the implications of what they already believe. And so that's why I think it's it's never wrong to ask a person a hypothetical of that sort, as long as the hypothetical um, doesn't begin by denying something that they hold to be true. The hypothetical has to start by by uh, operating within the scope of what they what they already believe. And then saying, okay, well, this hypothetical is at least consistent with what you already believe. What are the implications? It might, it might lead to some very uncomfortable implications. Right? Mm-hmm. That's the point of hypothetical reasoning and, and um, counterfactual conditionals or you know, thought experiments of this sort. Mm-hmm. Awesome. All right. So we're coming up on 90 minutes. Uh, I want to just do a quick uh, lightning round of listener questions. It's been 90 minutes already. That was fast. Yeah. Almost. Good yeah. stuff. I love it. So, around. how many questions do we have there, Joe? There's a bunch, but I haven't read through them yet. We should probably just pick a couple of good ones and then save um, the rest for later. Well, here's our one we wanted to talk about anyway. Like, why are, why are the three private fa- Facebook groups? I can handle that one. Uh, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, there's three private street epistemology Facebook groups. Uh, the first one was started by people who read Peter Bogosian's book. They're atheists. And they wanted a place to congregate. And that was the the big one that started. There's almost 5,000 people in that group um, right now. And uh, people in that group started realizing that, hey, we're promoting SE as this method that anybody can use, regardless of where you stand on the God claim. Let's open this group up to non-believers, uh, to believers, to God believers, or let's not even limit it to just atheists. And people in the group were a little concerned about that, like because they they're part they're part they're members of groups where they're atheists and and believers, and usually people are arguing, and they they didn't want to see the group devolve to that. So somebody had the suggestion, why don't you just create a brand new group? Which is what we did. So there's a brand new group called Learn Street Epistemology, and that one is open to everybody, regardless of your stance on any claim. You could be a deist, a Hindu, a theist, an atheist, doesn't matter. And you can you can be a member of that group. Um, and then in both groups, we try to discourage the actual practice of SE. And that might seem a little strange, but what we found is that when people start using SE on veganism or feminism or some other topic like gun control or even God, despite it being a collection of people who are learning SE, the conversations tend to get very aggressive and, and people start arguing the arguing their stances and presenting data and doing all this stuff. And they're, they're losing focus on the study of SE. So we created a third group called chat with a street epistemologist where people can go again, regardless of where you stand on a claim, it's open to everybody where somebody can make a claim. Somebody can agree to be the, the inquirer, the street epistemologist, and then you can engage in a, in a conversation where you can go and you can have somebody challenge a, a belief that you hold. So we have those three groups uh, and people, so many people are members of all three, um, but that's why we have three groups. I thought it was just because more is better. Yeah. I wish we can jam it all into one, but we, we've, we tended to, we needed to break it in along those lines in order to kind of keep it flowing really good. Yeah. And the, uh, the learn SE group has been very nice for giving us a bunch of topics for discussion. So yeah. Yeah. 
I think learned street epistemology, that one might even be a misnomer because it's almost about defending SE. Like every post, it seems, we're defending SE. I'm wondering if like discussing SE might be a better descriptor or defending SE might be a better one for that one. But right now we call it learn. Right. Okay. Uh, Next question. Can we each briefly define a successful SE chat? Hmm. I don't know. You go uh, read. What do you I, think? I know what it is for me. It's if if you get that aha moment, the spider moment uh, the, that uh, Ozzy was talking about. If you get something like that, for me, I'm done. I, I'll stop there. The rest of it's just icing. Yeah, we talk call that aporia, right? So if we if I get one of those, if if it's about the placing of the pebble, or if if someone just has a moment of reflection. Uh, that seems to be a good indicator of success for me, for sure. If you don't act like a, an asshole, that's probably a victory for many of us. Yeah. Included. Yeah, just the ability to set aside the the obviously wrong statement and focus on the epistemology, I think, is probably good. When you get somebody that says, I've never quite thought about it like that before, that's helpful. The big pause, like you mentioned, is really good. Ending on good terms. Um, I love it when somebody reaches out afterwards, days or weeks later, months later, and they contact me or they see me later and they remember me and they have a good, you know, they seem to be genuinely happy to have run into me. Like those, those are rewarding because I feel like the, the getting an indication that the conversation has stuck with a person is a success to me. Uh, and probably lower on that list, like it's this is probably not even my top ten, but it's seeing movement on a belief. Like that's that's nice to see too. When somebody says, "Yeah, I'm probably not as confident that prayer is a reliable way to conclude that Jesus is real," if I can get that in a ten minute or twenty minute talk, that's very rewarding. But as I've been doing these talks, it's not so much about that. It's it's much more I think about the uh, this idea of imparting the tools. To people so that they can do this on their own. I'm only gonna, I'm going to run into them maybe five or ten minutes out of one moment, you know, in their entire life. And the bigger bang for the buck, I think, is teaching them the tool set so that they can do this on their own. Yep. What's next question? Oh my can gosh, you so many. Ask a question from someone who doesn't actually practice street epistemology, but who is sort of from. Oh, sorry. I, I didn't mean to be rude. Yes, please jump in. I, I, I hadn't intended to uh, ask the question because I don't, I don't practice street epistemology myself. I'm just a sort of a curious onlooker um, and uh, quickly becoming an admirer of it. But uh, as someone who watches uh, more and more of these videos, uh, what I think a, a successful one is when, and I would encourage other people to try this because uh, I started doing this. When you hear the person answering a question and saying something, pause the video and think about what you are going to say if it's you having the conversation, instead of Anthony or Reed or somebody else that you're watching. And then start the video and listen to what they say instead. I'm embarrassed <laughs> times I, I am inclined to tell the person um, uh, in some polite or not so polite way that they're <laughs> that they're is a false assumption in there that they've committed a, 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 a fallacy of reasoning in there. It happens to me over and over and over again. And then I listen to what the street epistemologist actually does, how they handle it. 
And every time I feel like I just got knocked down a peg. Okay? <laughs> wow. That's how my conversations need to go. I need to have more conversations like that. When, when, when those moments happen, when I pause the video and I start it up and I go, oh, that's so much better than anything I've coming up with. Right. And they did it in real time. Right. Yeah. That for me is a good conversation. And I've, I've had that moment again and again. So I would encourage anyone who's watching these videos, do that exercise, pause the video, and just imagine what you would say instead of the street epistemologist, and then listen to what the street epistemologist says and see that's, if you would have handled it better or not. That's probably a great way to learn and practice SE is just take Anthony's or Reed's videos and do exactly that. Let them yeah. just pause that, it. And, I think that's good advice. Let me just caution that we are thinking of these questions on the fly and they're not necessarily the most ideal question. In fact, what the whole purpose of the app that Bogosian came up with called Atheos is to put yourself in those scenarios. Somebody makes a claim and then you have a selection of four, up to four different responses, and then you can pick the most ideal one. And oftentimes the things that I say, like I'll, as I'm editing the video, I'm like, ah. Oh, why did I say could instead of should? Or there's always little tweaks to the sentence that can make it just a little better. So these are not necessarily the, the most ideal responses, but I think it's a good exercise to go through. And and I, I will probably find myself doing that on, on Reed's videos and other people that are uploading this stuff. That, that's why it's, it's, it's fun to do because there, there will be occasions when you go, oh, no, I think my approach would have been better there. That would have been a better way of continuing the conversation. Good, good, yeah. Right? But very often I go, oh, man, I have some things to learn from these people. Um, and so it's very instructive. And every once in a while, it's very gratifying to, to hear you guys do what by my lights is a, is a misstep because I think, oh, I think I would have done better on the, in that in that particular moment. Right. Uh, but it's nice. You sort of get to gauge yourself as a as a as a, as a would be street epistemologist. Right. So should we idea? Good idea. Reed, you want to ask Anthony this slightly personal um, question? Okay. Is this a so, factions question? No. This okay, is about good. Anthony has become like a real figurehead for SE. So does he feel under any pressure at all? Well, I could try to be like, you know, dodge that question. But I, I do feel like uh, to a certain extent, people do see me like as a leader of this. Uh, I never intended it to be. Uh, you can look at my very first videos and I was not ever intending to be like a representative of SE. I just wanted to be a participant of it. Uh, and yet here I am, like I've given lots of talks on it and I'm going into Oslo, Norway in three weeks to give a talk on this stuff. So, so I think, um, it would be kind of foolish to say that I'm not, do I feel some pressure? I do. Yeah, I do. So sometimes I will decline engaging with somebody publicly because I start to worry like, well, if let's say I do very poorly, it must be how somebody people feel in a debate. Like if I, if I don't represent myself well here, um, all my work to date is now soured. And I kind of have to remind myself that hopefully people are charitable and look at your entire body of work. So yeah, there's a little worry about that. Um, you know, there was a really bad incident with a friend of mine who ended up, you know, he was involved in a domestic with his wife and ended up killing himself and his wife. And, and, and that got me thinking like, you know, uh, could, could my involvement, not that I was involved in it. I just, I happen to be a friend of his, um, could my involvement in that sort of, uh, reflect poorly on SE, you know, that, that, that this, this atheist friend of mine did that. So I do find myself thinking like more like a meta level, 
um, you know, if I make a tweet, uh, somebody's coming to the door. But uh, yeah, I, that does that, that is a concern of mine that that um, I might somehow misrepresent SE. And um, it is it is a little. Yeah, there's some pressure. There is some pressure there. Right. Um, what if an interlocutor asked the SEer what they think of their belief? Like, would the interlocutor appreciate the honesty of saying, I think your belief is silly, but that doesn't mean you're wrong? So if someone actually asked for your opinion on their belief straight out, should we? Like, I would. We kind of covered this earlier. We talked about when, you know, when you should disclose your belief. I, th I think... Personally, I like saying, if you don't mind, I'd like to wait until the end of the talk before I reveal my position because I don't want to influence things. Mm -hmm. um, but if they insist and say no, and I've even had a, f a few people say, well, I'm not going to tell you my position until I know where you stand. And then I would just tell them where I stand. You know, you don't want to become so dodgy that it becomes um, okay. suspicious. Do you remember if it made a difference when, when you said that? Does it seem like it? Effective to no, when you get somebody that's that's that guarded, it's kind of hard to recover. And then if you tell them that you disagree, it's even harder to, to kind of recover from it. Cool. All right. Well, uh, I think that's pretty close to everything we've talked talked about. Uh, all right. Any other announcements at the end here, Anthony? Just that on the first of the year, we're going to have all the different Facebook groups, like we mentioned, the website, the Twitter, and the YouTube channel will be updated. There will be a new header graphic, and it will be featuring our new logo. We're very excited about that. Sweet. Has yeah. anyone seen the logo besides us? What was the question? Has anybody seen the logo besides us? I don't think so. We had some people vote on the final top ones, but we we've been keeping it under wraps. So yeah. it'll be the, the big reveal. Yeah. All right. Cool. So Ozzy, it was really great having you on here and sharing your thoughts. I know that you've been following SE, you know, for the last few months and yeah. uh, uh, I hope you keep your eye on it and, and, you know, reach out to us if you feel like we're getting into some, some weeds or if you feel like we can improve in some area. Sure. Well, first of all, thank you for inviting me on. It was a, it was a pleasure to, to talk about it and share this stuff with you. Uh, and yeah, absolutely. If I, uh, if I ever see something where I think I, I can, um, you know, offer a recommendation that I think would help you out. But I, honestly, I have to say, um, for people who uh, haven't studied epistemology formally, um, you're doing a great job. So keep up the good work. Mm -hmm. No, we, we solved that problem. You don't have to be formally trained in epistemology then. No. See? If Ozzy says it, it must and, be true. If Ozzy says it, it must be. Do you, do you have a Facebook or YouTube? you want to plug Ozzy? Um, I, I have a YouTube channel. It's called Ozymandias Ramses II. Um, you can follow me on uh, Google Plus the same way, Ozymandias Ramses II. And you can friend me on Facebook, Ozymandias Ramses II. It's all very easy. I have all that in the If this, is, if this is your first time hearing about Ozzy, please check out his his work. He's been, he's been invited to many, many podcasts. And is a is a much sought after resource, I think, for a lot of influential atheists and people who uh, you know appreciate his view on philosophy. So please check out his work. Cool. All right. Anything to plug for you, Joe? No, I have nothing to plug. Okay. Well, you guys, you guys can catch me at Cordial Curiosity on any social media. Just search Cordial Curiosity, Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, Twitter. 
And Anthony? And you can find me on Twitter at Magnabosco. My YouTube channel is Magnabosco210. I will be uploading a video in the next couple of hours. It will be the extended version of that talk. Her name is Cindy, unless you want to, you know, in case you want to go ahead and search for her name in a few hours, you'll see it. And I'll be heading to Oslo, Norway in a few weeks to give a talk. And it's going to be a step-by-step, -step, this is how you learn street epistemology and, you know, hopefully cool. 33 minutes, 35 minutes, something like that. I think it'll be a really useful tool, possibly a, a good talk to replace the tutorials that are out there today. Love it. And uh, if you're listening to this, maybe within a week of it being posted, we'll try to have a community live stream sometime in the first uh, first week of January. So yeah, those are fun. Well, we had a couple of essay community live streams, and Dark uh, Darth Dawkins joined. So um, the Dark earlier Dawkins. talk about uh, giving, you know being charitable and listening and repeating back um, reminded me of that conversation that I had with him. But yeah, the, the SE community live streams are really cool. That's your place to go if you want to practice SE, if you want to discuss it, if you have a criticism criticism of street epistemology or a new idea. Like I think the idea for the I own a expensive car came from Science Pete, who was on the SE community hangout. So go ahead and check yeah. that out. You can find that under this channel, the street epistemology channel. Sweet. All right. Well, thanks, guys, for, for doing this. And uh, we'll catch you next time. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. Happy New Year. Street epistemology is a technique by Dr. Peter Bogosian in his book, A Manual for Creating Atheists, and his Android and iOS app, Atheos. 